Hello, and welcome to this episode of Criminal Mischief, the Art and Science of Crime Fiction. I'm D.P. Lyle. This show is on Authors on the Air Global Radio Network, and I want to welcome you here today. Today is going to be fun. I want to take a little stroll through forensic science history and hit some of the high points. I'm going to do this more or less in chronological order rather than do it in um, technique order. In other words, I'm not going to talk about fingerprints and then talk about toxicology and then talk about autopsies. I'm going to talk about the history, how it unfolded. So I hope you can get a feel for how we got from nothing to where we are now, which is quite astounding in many regards. So let's go way, 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 way back. Um, Remember, forensic science is just science looked at through the law. That's what forensic means. You look at it through the lens of the law. And so most of forensic science it, it deals with identification, identifying an object, a substance, a person, something, and then quantitating that, and then comparing that. This is the same as this. This came from this. This was caused by this. And so... It is an identification and a relationship. That's what forensic science is all about. Remember, Sherlock Holmes famously said that once you have eliminated all the other possibilities, the one that's left, regardless of how implausible, is the answer. And that's what forensic science does. It eliminates one person, one thing after another until there's a last man standing, if you will, or a last substance standing if it's identification. So as we go through this, think about that. Think about how each of these steps helped eliminate things and, and move the arrow toward another direction. So you go all the way back to prehistory and the cave artists and pot makers way back in the time used to sign their work either with a bit of paint or grease or something, or actually they imprinted their fingerprint or thumbprint into their, their work sometimes. That was to identify it as their work. The Chinese did, did this as, uh, as early as 1000 BC, would use fingerprints to sign, if you will, legal documents. They would put their prints on there. Um, the first autopsies appeared in about the 3rd century B.C. in Alexandria in Egypt, um, done by a couple of guys, Herophilus and Aristratus. And they did the first autopsies. Now, these were obviously for more for religious or for anatomical reasons, trying to learn more about the human body than they were for forensics. But they opened that door to autopsy, to self-examination. That's what autopsy means, it means self-look at. So we're looking at ourselves. We're looking at other humans. In the second century A.D., Galen uh who is a giant in medicine. I mean, you can't even, you can't, Galen's influence went from uh, the 2nd the century AD all the way into the 17 and 1800s. It, his, his shadow is huge, uh, an amazing person, but he was the physician to the Roman gladiators. And so he saw a lot of wounds. He saw a lot of open chest and open bellies and open this and open that. And so he understood anatomy very well. He also did dissections on humans and animals to learn more about injuries and wounds and all of that. You see where this is leading. In about 1000 A.D., 
See, we're moving pretty quickly. A Roman attorney named Quintilian showed that a bloody handprint was was intended to frame a blind man for his mother's murder. Someone else had put the, the, the bloody handprint up there to try to frame this, this guy. So now we're starting to see that the legal people are getting interested in prints. In 1194, King Richard Plantagenet officially created the position of coroner. Now, coroner means crowner of the king, so it was a position that was that was developed and certified by the king, and therefore it was high up the food chain in the legal world. It still is. Coroners today are county-level positions, and they're responsible for death investigations. They sign death certificates. They determine the cause and manner, time, and death. They're huge. They can issue subpoenas. They can do all kinds of things. They have a lot of power. So this all started with King Richard Plantagenet. Now, about the 1200s, you see, we're jumping way forward because not much is known about you know, the first few thousand years of humans. Uh, the first forensic autopsies were done at the University of Bologna, and they were to look at what was the cause of death, what did this, how did this happen, what came about, etc., etc., like that. Then in 1247, Sung Tzu published his famous book, The Washing Away of Wrongs. And this was actually the first forensic text. He actually talked about crimes and criminal investigations. This had never been done in history. Then uh, Pope, Pope Clement VI, in the 1300s, the 1348 to 1350 thereabouts, ordered autopsies to be done on the victims of the Black Death. And what he was looking for was a cure for this disease that was killing half the world's population at the time. And this is very interesting. Here he is, the head of one of the largest religions in the world. And yet he is looking at a cause of death that is more secular that is less religious. This isn't bad karma. This isn't, you know, God coming down and putting plagues on people because they're evil. He is actually looking for a scientific explanation. So he ordered autopsies on the victims of the Black Death. I think that's fascinating. And this led in the next century, in the 1400s, to the development of the first medical schools in Padua and Bologna. Then uh, in the 1500s, a great physician named Ambrose Paré he wrote all kinds of articles on the anatomy of war and homicidal wounds, what they looked like, what injuries looked like from gunshots and cannon blasts and bayonets and all this stuff. He also was a fantastic physician and a wartime surgeon and, and, and did many, many things that impacted medicine over the centuries that followed. He was a brilliant guy. But he wrote about homicidal wounds, which I thought was, was great. In 1642, University of Leipzig began offering courses in forensic medicine. This had never been done before. So now here we are in the mid-1600s, and we're starting to look at a more scientific approach to forensic science and to, crim and to criminal activities. In 1683, Anton van Leeuwenhoek, 
used the microscope to first see living bacteria. He called them animalcules, which I think is interesting. I think using the word animalcules let him know that these things were alive. They weren't just innate objects that he was seeing under his microscope, that these things were living, breathing creatures. And I think that that was a huge leap in medicine, but also the fact that now the microscope was starting to enter. Remember, things went from, from science to medicine and then into forensics. That's the progression of almost everything. And so we flash forward to 1685 and Malpighi was the first to recognize fingerprint patterns. He actually used a magnifying thing and looked at the pads of his fingerprints and said, well, look at all these things. And he actually used the terms loops and whirls, which we still use today to describe some of these patterns that we saw. Um, unbelievable. Now let's shift gears here a little bit. In 1775, Paul Revere, who everyone knows, he remember he did a lot of things, silversmithing and everything. He also made dentures. Well, there was a mass grave at Bunker Hill, and Paul Revere was, was able to identify the body of his friend, Dr. Joseph Warren, because he identified the dentures that he had made for him. So... <laughs> This is the beginning of forensic odontology, if you will. He identified a body by its teeth because, well, he made them. Around the same time in the same year, Carl Wilhelm Schill developed the first test for arsenic. So now we could actually identify arsenic, which was pretty cool. Um, in 1784... We have maybe the first ballistics comparison ever made. John Toms was convicted of a murder based on the, the, the paper wadding that they used in the old muzzle loaders. They had to wad some paper in there. You'd fire it. Well, the paper will come out with a bullet. And the paper wadding was found because it was a close-range gunshot wound within the victim's wound. And it was matched to some paper found in, in John Toms's pocket. And this is, this is not the ballistic comparison we know now, you know, grooves and lands and all that. But this was the first time that, that a, a ballistic evaluation led to something. And then in 1787, Johann Metzger actually found a method to isolate arsenic. Not just identify it, but now he could isolate it. And that's a whole story. And this was kind of leading us into the road of forensic toxicology. We were starting to move in that direction. There were other steps along the way, but we were starting to move in that direction. And then there was a guy named Franz Joseph Gall who developed the field of phrenology. This will play in later, where he... he could look at the bumps on someone's head. Everybody's skull is a little bumpy and lumpy, and he could determine the criminal nature of people. Yeah, okay, fine. Uh, back then, it was it was um, it was unknown, and so what? Again, he said it was true, so it must be true, right? Uh, and we didn't know any better then. In 1806, a huge step. Valentine Rose discovered that he could recover arsenic from the human body. Okay. So now, remember, arsenic was a huge poison. It was the queen of poisons or the king of poisons, depending on how you look at it. Arsenic was used to kill a whole lot of people for a whole lot of reasons for many, many centuries, still is today. 
And so now you have a method of finding it within the human body, meaning that if someone was suspected of being poisoned with arsenic, now they could find it in the body. And shortly thereafter, uh, in 1813, uh, seven years later, uh, uh, Matthew Joseph Bonaventure Ophila published his book called A A Treatise on Poisons. And this was the first toxicology textbook. And so now he was starting to quantify and put together all these poisons into a text so that people could scientifically and intellectually discuss and find them. Then in 1821, the next step on this road, Savius found a way of isolating arsenic from the human stomach contents and urine. And this was really the beginning of the field of forensic toxicology because now we could find the poison inside the individual in their stomach or their urine, which means that they had ingested it. Huge, huge, huge. In 1823, just a couple of years later, Johannes Prakinji devised the first very crude fingerprint classification system. We'll talk more about that later, but this was the first step that was going to lead us down a road. In 1835, Henry Goddard matched two bullets to show that they came from the same bullet mold. Not rifling, not down the barrel, not fired by the same gun, but they were made in the same mold. Remember back then, people would make their own bullets, and they would melt lead, they would put it in this mold, they would clamp it down, they would then open it up, and the bullet would be formed. Well, remember, defects appear in that. Each mold is a little different. It has grooves and notches and and scratches and scrapes and stuff, and he was able to match two bullets and show that they came from the same mold. We're moving down the road in ballistic evaluations. Uh, then in 1836, Alfred Taylor developed the first test to really find arsenic inside human tissues. So now we can not only find it in the stomach and in the urine, and then we could actually find it in human tissues in a dead body. Wow. Forensic toxicology is moving forward. And in that same year, James Marsh developed his very sensitive test for arsenic known as the Marsh test. And it's still in, in use today in, 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 a, in an improved form. But the Marsh test is the basis of, um, of much of our testing now. Then a guy named Ludwig Teichmann in 1853 developed the hematin test. And this would test for blood. Now, this was huge. You see a stain on the floor where there's maybe been a crime committed. Is that tomato juice? Is it mud? Is it chocolate? Is it blood? There was no way of knowing that. And blood doesn't look like blood after it's dried. It looks more like chocolate. Uh, it gets brown brown and, and rusty appearing, and it doesn't look like bright red blood. And so uh, not like it is picked it in movies and TV. Uh, it, it changes pretty quickly most of the time. Not always, but most of the time. Um, so he developed this. So now they could come into a scene of a crime and determine if there was blood present. This was huge, huge. In 1858, there was a guy named William Herschel who was in Bengal, Italy. And, and he required, because there was so much fraud in the welfare system there, people had to sign contracts, their welfare contracts, with a hand imprint. 
So now you had a way of determining if someone came to get their money, whether it was them or not. Again, identification through prints. But more importantly, Herschel took his own fingerprints over a period of 50 years, and he showed they didn't change. That the fingerprints he had as a young man were the same as when he was an old man. They did not change over five decades. Think about the importance of that. We didn't know before. Okay, so we got prints. We can take prints. We can identify someone's print. But what if they change over time? You know, your hair changes, your your size and weight, and all that stuff changes. Your appearance changes. But your fingerprints don't. Huge. Um, other tests were developed for blood. And then in 1869, a guy named Meischer, Frederick Meischer, discovered DNA. He didn't know what it was, but he discovered DNA. And now we had a, a, uh, a molecule called dioxynucleic acid. And so dioxyribonucleic acid. And so we have DNA. All right. That's going to play in, as you well know. In 1875, Wilhelm Röntgen discovered x-rays, which would become important on into other forensic investigations down the road. And then a guy named Lombroso in 1876, published his book, The Criminal Man, in which he stated that criminals could be identified and classified by their physical characteristics, things like uh, big eyebrows and low-set ears and wide mouth. This, this mean they were criminals. Well, we all know that's not true then, but they didn't know the difference. They didn't know the difference. In 1877, the medical examiner system was first established in Massachusetts. Right now, we have counties that are coroner system and others that are medical examiner systems. At the end of the day, they should be more or less the same. They're not. <laughs> but in 1877 is when the medical examiner system first appeared. And then in, in 18, 1880, Henry Falls showed that you could powder dust latent fingerprints, and suddenly they would appear. Now, this was huge in criminal investigation. You know, you see this all the time, dusting for fingerprints. Well, this started in 1880. And then in 1882, a very interesting character, Alphonse Bertillon, developed an anthropometric identification system. Look this guy up. It'll be in the show notes. Look, look him up, because this is fascinating. He um, took several different measures. I forget. 12, 14, 16, whatever it was, things like, you know, your little finger and this, the length of your uh, upper arm bone and the, your lower leg. And, and he had this whole system, right and left side, all this stuff. And you would measure all of these things and you'd come up with a number. And he said, no two people had the same number. And this became a huge argument between the Bertillon system and the fingerprint system as to which is the best for a really identifying people. And this argument went on for about 20 years. The argument was ultimately settled in the famous Will West case. And again, look this up, William West. It's a fantastic, it's a fantastic scenario that had to do with two imprisoned people who had the same Bertillion numbers but different fingerprints. And it'll, I, I won't spoil the, the ending for you. But then Mark Twain employed fingerprints identification in two of his books, Life on the Mississippi, which was a more nonfiction book, and, and a thumb, a severed thumb played into that one, and The Tragedy of Puddinghead Wilson, which um, had fingerprints in, in a courtroom that, that, that helped solve a, a mystery there. This predated the actual use of fingerprints. 
which was coming up about six years later, uh, actually almost 10 years later, but it wasn't present then. In 1887, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle wrote his, fa- his first of the famous Sherlock Holmes novels called A Study in Scarlet, and in that, he developed a chemical to determine whether a stain was blood or not. So we're starting to see now what had come before entering into into this world, the investigative world, but it still hadn't been used in a criminal case yet. Sherlock Holmes did. Then a guy named Alexandre Lacassana in 1889 showed that the marks on bullets could be matched to those inside a rifle barrel. Well, you can see where that's going. That was a huge undertaking. Then in 1892, Sir Francis Galton published his classic textbook on fingerprints, which talked about what they were, how they could be matched, what they looked like, etc. But in in the same year in Argentina, a guy named Juan Vucetic devised a usable fingerprint classification system. It would later be uh, improved in 1899 by Sir Edward Richard Henry and where he devised a classification system that is the basis for that's what's used today. And it's simple. Again, it's elimination. So let's say you you have a system that says if you have a whorl, which is one of the patterns on your left ring finger, and you're comparing it to 10,000 other fingerprints, you don't have to go through 10,000 of them. You only have to go through the thousand that also have that whorl. And then you say, well, they got this other pattern on their right index finger. Well, out of that thousand, how many have that? And now you're down to 100. It's elimination. And this is the same way APHIS and all the things that we use now work. They eliminate. That finger doesn't have that, so this can't be the person, and on and on and on and on and on. But Vucetic devised the first system. And also in the same year, he was called into the famous case of Francesca Rojas, who apparently had a boyfriend who wouldn't marry her because she had a child and she killed the child in order so that she would be available for marriage. And she left a fingerprint in blood at the crime scene, and Bukatik was able to show that this was hers, and she was convicted. That's the first time fingerprints were used to gain a criminal conviction. And then in 1898, a guy named Paul Jesserix used a microscope to compare bullets. That was a huge step. In 1901, many things happened. I've already talked about Sir Edward Richard Henry developing a fingerprint system. Well, it was then adopted by um, Scotland Yard to replace the old Bertillion system. So that war was now over with. Also, Paul Ulruth developed a system to distinguish human blood from animal blood. That's huge. A blood stain found somewhere, how do you know it's not a dog or a cat or an aardvark? If you can tell it's human, it changes things. But maybe the most important, Carl Landsteiner developed the ABO blood typing system. And until DNA came along, this was the main way of identifying who who this bloodstain might belong to. But remember, it's elimination. It couldn't exactly say so. But let's say blood that is AB negative is left at a crime scene. Well, about 3% of people have AB negative blood. 
So what have you what have you done by identifying that blood type? You've eliminated 97% of the people on the planet. Well, that's a big step in the right direction. DNA later obviously improved on that. In 1902, Harry Jackson became the first person in England to be convicted on fingerprint evidence, following up on the Busetic's thing. Um, in 1910, Edmund Locard opened the first forensic laboratory in Lyon, France. You can see we're moving towards scientific, um, the scientific approach to crime. In 1910, Thomas Jennings became the first U.S. citizen convicted on fingerprints. Uh, in 1915, Leon Lattes used Landsteiner's work and developed a method for ABO typing of dried blood stains. So now you don't need to draw blood from a living person to determine their blood type that we use in medicine and transfusions and whatnot. But now you can find dried blood at a crime scene and you'd be able to determine its type. Still haven't got to be DNA yet, but this was a step in the right direction. In 1920 was the famous Sacco Vanzetti case, which really brought ballistic comparisons to the public's attention. They were a couple of anarchists. Anyway, there was the gunshots, all this stuff. Um, and the case went through, it, it really brought the comparison microscope into, into, into public knowledge. This case was fought almost, for a hundred years. Uh, it's been reopened two or three times, but at the end of the day, they found, no, these guys were not framed. It actually, actually did this. The bullets actually did math, did match. In 1923, uh, the L LA police chief, August Vollmer developed the first forensic laboratory for a police department, which was huge. In 1929, a very famous thing happened on Valentine's day. Al Capone tried to take out Bugsy Siegel, not Bugsy Siegel, Bugs Moran and his people in the famous Valentine's Day Massacre. Well, they had over 100 bullets from uh, these Thompson submachine guns to analyze, and they went through it very meticulously. To make a long story short, the bullets were traced back to a couple of Thompsons that were held by a couple of Capone's hitmen, and they were you know, brought up on charges for it. But a couple of guys saw this was at the trial all the time, and they were so impressed. A couple of wealthy guys, they put money into the scientific crime detection, scientific crime detection laboratory, which was the first independent crime lab. This was in Chicago, where all this took place, and it was at Northwestern University. So now we have the first independent crime lab. And in 1932, the FBI opened their crime lab, and they patterned it after the one developed in Chicago. In 1953, Watson and Crick and Maurice Wilkins determined the structure of DNA, so we're starting to move down the road of, of, of DNA. Um, Dr. William Bass in 1971 established the body farm at the University of Tennessee in Knoxville, and this is where he would study Tafani, the 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 decay process of human remains and starting to study it from a scientific point of view, that evidence that, that, that research continues until today. Uh, in 1974 gunshot residue using uh, scanning electron microscopy has was developed and you see this all the time. So 1974 was the first time in 1977, the FBI, 
put in the APHIS system. That's the Automated Fingerprint Identification System. See, the problem with things like dental records, DNA, and fingerprints is that if you don't have something to compare it against, it doesn't tell you anything. So if you don't put the data together in a usable, searchable database, then you have to develop a suspect, go get that person's prints, in this case fingerprints, and compare them. Well, you can see how the odds of that are very remote. But now, if all criminals, when they're arrested and they have their fingerprints done, I mean, I had to have my fingerprints done um, to get a medical license. And so they're on file somewhere. If, if they find the fingerprint and they run it through this system and they get a match, you see how that, that cuts out so much time and so much effort because this can go through hundreds of thousands in no time. Boom, 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 boom. This is how the famous Night Stalker was out here in California was called. In 1984 was a huge turning point in forensic science. Sir Alec Jeffries developed the DNA fingerprinting technique. And just three years later, the, in the famous Colin Pitchfork case, it was used and the first criminal was identified by the use of DNA. This is a case where they had to go out and obtain DNA samples from this entire little town because two girls had been murdered. Everyone, all males in there were suspected. Uh, and they finally got the DNA and they finally caught Colin Pitchfork. It's a fascinating story. Joseph Wambaugh wrote a book called The Blooding, which is about this. In that same year, the first United States use of DNA and conviction was in the Florida case of Tommy Lee Andrews. Then in 1990, the combined DNA index system, or CODIS as we know it, was established. Just like APHIS for fingerprints, now if you have a DNA profile, you have an unknown criminal, but they leave the DNA behind in the form of blood, semen, hair, whatever, and you got, you got nuclear DNA, you can load it up in the CODIS system and see if you get a hit. Again, you have to have a searchable database. In 1992, just two years later, the polymerase chain reaction or PCR technique was introduced. This is important because before you had to have a pretty good sample. With PCR, which uses a technique that replicates the DNA much as it's done inside our bodies, now you can take theoretically a single cell and you can produce a room full of DNA that is identical. Now you've got plenty to work with when you're doing matching. So even tiny, tiny, tiny samples, a single blood drop will yield enough DNA to, to match it against lots of different people and do lots of different things with it. And shortly thereafter, 1994, the STR, or short tandem repeats, this allowed us to use more degraded and older and broken down DNA and still use it to, to create a fingerprint profile. In 1996, mitochondrial DNA was first admitted into a U.S. courtroom in Tennessee versus Ware. And in 1998, uh, the National DNA Index System, NDIS, came online. Again, like CODIS, offering a method of comparison. So what's happened since then? Well, we got things like touch DNA and familial DNA and phenotypic DNA. Touch DNA is where you leave a fingerprint. You touch something and you leave behind a couple of blood cells. Again, because of PCR and STRs, if someone sees a fingerprint, they may be able to find, they can probably find your drug history too, because now they can do toxicological examinations on that, but they can obtain a DNA sample from that and then plug it in. Familial DNA, 
famous grim sleeper case here in Los Angeles, uh, Southern California was, was based on this. And this is, you, this is controversial now, but you, you get a suspect DNA and you don't have anybody in CODIS or an NDIS. You don't find a match, but you start finding matches that are close and you find this person must be closely related. And so you focus your attention on that and pretty soon you find, well, you know, Uncle Joe may be the guy because, you know, he's a shady guy and and he's got connections with the victim and he's got a reason and a motive and a means and an opportunity. And so he may be the guy. And so now you go after collecting his DNA either by warrant or by subterfuge following him around and wait till he throws a cigarette or a Coca-Cola can away. This is controversial, but the point is, from a scientific point of view, you can narrow the focus. Again, what does forensic evidence do? It narrows the focus. And so you've eliminated billions of people on the planet, and you got a handful, and they're all related to these two or three people with similar DNA to that left in the scene. So why wouldn't you go look at it? And then there's phenotypic DNA. This means that we can take a DNA sample and determine someone's height, Maybe their weight, their hair color, their eye color, their ethnicity, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. This is a new field that's growing. So I hope you've had as much fun with this as I have. On the show notes, there'll be all the stuff will be listed, and there's a whole lot more. This is just some of the highlights. But I think you can see how we went from really knowing nothing to knowing a whole lot and how we stumbled along the way in all of these fields from fingerprints to DNA to toxicology to ballistics examinations to autopsies and anatomical things to, to the cause of death and the manner of death. And all of these things just evolved over time. And they did so in parallel. It wasn't like one thing went and then another thing went and then another thing went. But in general, someone would observe something, empirically observe something in the world. And then they would scientifically investigate it and something would come out of that. Okay, we can find arsenic. We can identify arsenic, this this terrible chemical. Okay, the next step is it entered into medicine. People who were accidentally arsenic poisoned, we would identify them and know what was wrong with them and, and better treat them, even though the treatment was rudimentary by then. And then, oh, by the way, people also use arsenic to poison people. So now we can find arsenic in dead people. We can find arsenic in their stomach and in their urine and all of this. And we can determine that someone was actually poisoned by arsenic. Now it enters the criminal world. And that's kind of the way that everything in science has evolved. It starts as basic science, then it moves into the medical world, and finally it moves into the forensic world. That's kind of the way it's always been. So I hope you had some some fun here. I hope you learned a few things. I hope you gained a better feeling for how we went from point A to point B. So this has been D.P. Lyle, and this has been a stroll through forensic science history here on Criminal Mischief, the Art and Science of Crime Fiction. As I said, there will be a, a, a uh, show notes posted up on my website and my blog. So go there and you can look at all these things. So you don't have to remember all these names and dates and stuff. They're right there in front of you. There's also an article on my website. That's even more extensive. You can go to my website and just click there and see it. All of that'll be available. So until next time, see you then. <laughs>